how to start? Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to the Creative Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Brock Swinson. Over the past 200-plus episodes, I've had the good fortune of speaking with dozens of screenwriters, actors, and directors, such as Aaron Sorkin, Mel Brooks, Carrie Fukunaga, Whitney Cummings, Michael Imperioli, and William Monaghan, among others. We've dissected ideas on story, character, filmmaking, habits, and various principles for creative life. If this is your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can also find several of these interviews on the Creative Screenwriting Magazine website, in addition to some that aren't available in audio, such as with Nick Kroll or Stephen Merchant. This episode is brought to you by Author Builder. Whether you are an experienced author with an established base of fans or a new author looking to cultivate a following, Author Builder provides you an easy way to build a website, showcase and sell your book, and engage with your community. This all-in-one approach saves authors a ton of time and money because you don't have to worry about purchasing a separate monthly plans for website hosts, a storefront, an email list, and everything in between. Author Builder does all that for you. Plus, you can get multiple layout and theme options specifically designed with authors in mind. As you've likely heard me mention in the past few episodes, I've recently published my first book, and there's nothing more overwhelming than trying to coordinate all of these complex systems. Luckily, the team at Author Builder has solved this problem for you. If you act now, you can actually save 25% on an annual purchase, or you can sign up for the free plan, which won't cost you a dime. From free to basic to pro to premium, each plan gives you a subdomain, at least a thousand emails per month, at least one blog post per month, SEO capabilities, automatic updates, an about me page, image hosting, the ability to send newsletters, and even analytics and tracking. Simply click the plans tab on the site and you can choose the plan that works best for you and your book. Whether you write fiction or nonfiction, writing a book is hard enough. Don't get stuck doing all the complex administrative work of managing multiple programs when this all-in-one approach puts every tool at your fingertips in a single, easy-to-use location. You can find the link in the bio, and that's authorbuilder.com to sign up today. And now on with episode 256. In 2013, author James McBride published a remarkable book about Henry Shackelford, an enslaved person who united with John Brown and his abolitionist movement. The book was called The Good Lord Bird. Producer Jeremy Gold, known for sharp objects, encouraged Hell on Wheels writer Mark Richard to read the book. He said he read it in one sitting. Little did Richard know, Gold had also spoken to actor Ethan Hawke from Training Day and the Before Trilogy about the book, which he and his wife had also read in a single serving. Thanks to their mutual love for the book, a brunch meeting was set up and by 2020, the limited series hit Showtime. In the special interview, Hawke and Richard discussed their love for Peck and Paul, how to introduce a character like John Brown, the challenges of writing a tragic comedy, why you must be passionate about an adaptation, and what it means to play the fool. You can also look for the print version of this interview on the Creative Screenwriting website. So our friendship to Jeremy Gold. Why don't you take that, Mark? Yeah, I could just because I knew Jeremy first. Um, Jeremy was uh, uh, one of the producers of uh, uh, Hell on Wheels, 
when I was executive producer. Uh, this is like years ago, TV show about a Western. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, he put the book, uh, Good Lord Bird, in my hands, and I read it in one sitting, and I uh, called him up like, this was on a Sunday. On a Monday, I said, hey, I'm in. And he said, great. Uh, coincidentally, Ethan Hawke is going to be in town, uh, I think shortly after that, Ethan. And then you and I had a long, long brunch on a Sunday. And uh, that's kind of how we met. What did you guys see in the story? Does the novel has this, have that same like comedic tone? Or what, what kind of was fresh about this story? There's something unbelievably, I mean, the word fresh and, and James McBride, they just go together. The the there's something so irreverent and uh, simultaneously incendiary and loving about James's writing that is just completely uncommon. And it was such a playful attack on such a serious subject that Mark and I were both hypnotized by it. And our meeting went as well as the meeting could go because our 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 love for the book was so sincere and we both really felt like our job was just to stick a syringe in the novel and try to put it into the mercury of, of cinema, you know, and just, we didn't need to fix anything. We just needed to capture it. So I want to talk a little about that first scene where we kind of, if we skip over the foreshadowing for a moment, the scene where the shaving scene where we kind of meet onion and John and John's talking somewhat of a silhouette. It's, it's 1856 you're showing the two sides pre-Civil War. How much conversation went into this introduction of John Brown? And what were some of those pieces you put together for this first scene? Yeah, just yeah, just for a second, because I think it was interesting as a, you know, and Ethan and I are both novelists, but um, in James's novel, there's a preface, and I think that's what you were asking about, about the, um, the church, the church burning. And um, James told us, he said, you know, my editor asked me to put that in to sort of, you know, ramp up the story. But the the real story begins in that uh, in that barbershop. And as much as we tried to ramp up anything um, to that, I mean, even the studio, the network were going, can we have a scene where, you know, it's it's in the it's in the future and. Uh, Onion comes and as a drummer boy, we we tried like three or four different scenes to ramp up that uh, that tavern scene. And you know what we did? We came to the conclusion is that that's where the story starts. So James was right, and uh, you know when something's right, you don't have to fix it. Um, and we had a lot of discussion, as you say, about this. You know what what would precede that scene, and we came to the conclusion that. Nothing could precede that scene. Yeah. At its core, the story is actually really simple. You know, it's it's this love story between uh, John Brown and, and Onion. And so the story begins when they meet. You know, it's as simple as that. And uh, Mark and I are both big Peckinpah fans and kind of felt like the the barbershop scene had a great Peckinpah feel to it, just outrageous and strange and violent and uh let's just open it like an old-fashioned western so we meet john and onion in this scene um do you guys see this as like a two-hander or multiple storylines or something else entirely well i think it's important to remember that onion is the main character um you know it's it's told from um the point of view of onion the novel is 
And uh, of course, you know, John Brown is significant. And, and, and I don't know if it's a, you know, straight two-hander, but the challenge of adapting the novel was um, the novel is so much interior of Onion and Onion's, uh, you know, perceptions, his misperceptions. And the challenge for us was to go inside this, you know, young, young boy's head and explore that um, in, in, in the radiance of this over-the-top character, John Brown. So um, it, it, I don't know if I don't know if you would call it a two-hander per se, because just remember that um, Onion is the main character. It's like Huck Finn. You know, Huck Finn is the main character. Of course, there's Jim, and there's you know a lot of other people. Um, but you know, uh, he's he's the guy, right, Ethan? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think for us, all the way through the the big challenge for us is making sense out of a few things that James didn't have to make sense out of when it's all told from onion's point of view, onion could just say something like, I have no idea why, but the next day we went to Iowa, you know, and, and <laughs> that works in the novel. And it's kind of funny that the young man doesn't know what's happening or where he's going, but when you're doing drama, the audience needs more information and, how to deliver that information and that story without losing the point of view was always, was a challenge from page one, you know, of the first episode to the end of the last. We kind of see some of that. So there's some big misconceptions or misunderstandings. First of all, that, you know, that John thinks Onion is a girl early on. And then later on when Onion's talking and they, he's confused by what they mean by a trim and a haircut and that type of thing. Are these mainly like, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> Do you, do you see these as mainly as like comedic moments? Because they also really show a lot about that character that he can't just correct them because of his you know position in life. Well, McBride mines humor from everything, from everything. What's wonderful about his situations and make them so ripe for adaptation is that he's just mining our absolute ridiculousness as people, our desire to take ourselves seriously. He just mines it for unending humor. And, uh, you know, I often liken his writing to Larry McMurtry's. I mean, he's just a great storyteller and he creates really vivid characters and isn't afraid to let them be human. And it's why McMurtry's books are, are so wonderful to adapt and have been so successful is that he just creates great scenes. Uh, and so it was a lot of this was very easy for Mark and I. You know, a lot of times, uh, you know, I've, I've had to adapt or not had to, but I've, you know, I've tried to uh, adapt several novels in the past. And, you know, what Ethan is saying is right. Um, my first advice given to me by one of my mentors for adapting was, you know, read the book and then throw it over your shoulder and, you know, write the script. And in this case, it was the opposite where we, we our thing was just to cherry pick all the, the luscious moments in the novel and uh, try to form them. I mean, we, we had an embarrassment of uh, riches. And as far as the comedic aspects, um, you know, it's interesting. I'm, I'm working with uh, James on his uh, most recent novel, Deacon King Kong, and it, it's even become more clear and pronounced to me that um, what, the, what the comedy does uh, is mask and help make palatable an underlying 
in, in his most recent book, and I think some, somewhat to good Lord Bird, there's a simmering anger and a, and, a, and a justified simmering rage in both books. But you can't preach to the choir, um, but through the comedy, you can almost lift the pot up and look into the, the steaming cauldron of that rage and then put the top back down. And I think that's what he does so brilliantly is that through those those moments of comedy that are really funny at that moment, he lifts the top off the pot and you see you see what's beneath you. You see you, you see the anger and the injustice and the fear and the rage. And he's a master at that. Um, and it's a challenge to you know bring that to the screen. But as Ethan says, that's what he does so masterfully. It also uses. He uses wit and silliness to disguise really grand, um, significant ideas. Um, you know, mm-hmm. he is allergic to pretense and pretension, and he still manages to talk about the biggest ideas, meaning the ideas of faith and identity, and uh, it, both on a personal level and a national level. Um, he's he's attacking these subjects, which. You know, normally when I would tell people I was working on a about John Brown, they would get a very pious look on their face, like this must be a very quote-unquote important um, piece, i.e., one they never want to see. <laughs> you know, you know what I mean. And and, um, and and James's magic lies in in just disguising everything that is is profound about his work and in, in silliness and love. So if we kind of expand upon that. There's a lot of talk of racism and religion, obviously. Uh, let's take maybe Frederick, the Frederick Douglass dinner table. You're talking about men's desires versus God's desires. How do you kind of start to, in addition, maybe if you expand upon the novel, how are you guys having conversations? Are you both taking sides, or how are your writers looking at these big conversations like this? Well, that's a wonderful question, because Mark and I enjoyed working on that scene tremendously. Um, you know, just... I remember having a conversation, the two of us saying, you know, when you really realize that John Brown and Frederick Douglass were friends and, you know, Frederick Douglass hosted him at his house. And we just asked ourselves, what would it be like to sit at that dinner table? What would it be like? These two great minds at this very pivotal moment in history and their friendship. And what, what if we really dared just sit you down and, and break bread with this incredible encounter. Of course, we had the the irreverent tone in which the whole novel is placed in to, to, to do it with. I mean, to to mine for humor and and everything. But, you know, I mean, McBride is imagining that Onion shows up at this home of Frederick Douglass, the wealthiest person of color he had ever met or ever been close to. And there's servants and there's beautiful meals after he was just in bloody Kansas. And then add on to this, the guy's living there, not only with his beautiful wife, but with his mistress as well. And how confusing that would be to a runaway from bloody Kansas. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a situation, you know, uh, Mark Twain wouldn't even know what to do with. I mean, it's just so ripe for comedy and, uh, and ideas that Mark and I knew we had a huge challenge with that scene. That was one of the most fun periods of, of the show for me um, and maybe for Ethan. It's like making that, because that scene's not in the book. 
and um, that imagining that we, having lived in this novel for so long, you know, a year and a half, that we kind of we we kind of had our footing by that point, and I know we were even working until the day. I mean, even even as we were shooting it, we were fine tuning it. And uh, creatively, it was one of the most challenging and fun scenes that uh, I've ever worked on. And I, I mean, we we keep Me saying too. it's like you know, 19 it, pages or something. It's a highlight of my life, really. And, and we had darn, we had we had the right people at the right time. Joshua was incredible and had unending intelligence and energy. And David was coming with all this wit and intelligence. And Darnell is really experienced director and really knowledgeable about history. She was the perfect person for this moment, a, a match of comedy and, and, uh, and the depth of understanding. And, you know, McBride came down for rehearsals and it was just some of the most, it was some of the most dangerous work we had to do. And everybody was up for it. Everybody smelled uh, that it could be an original scene. Yeah, it was wonderful. I just remember during lunch, I was on the floor, the second floor of that, that big house in Richmond where we were shooting, and uh, I was just up there. I couldn't eat, and uh, I saw Darnell, and it was just Darnell Martin, the director, and she came skipping, and she was skipping, <laughs> up, literally skipping up and down the hallway of this house. She was so happy and giddy. And just so excited and couldn't wait for everybody to come back from lunch so we could continue. And I think that kind of excitement and, and happiness was infectious with the rest of the, the cast and crew. We all felt. I remember, I remember um, David and Joshua, you know, lifting up their heavy clothes to put around the air conditioning unit to try to cool down at that lunch break, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What were so you mentioned um, the scene where well, that scene where Onion meets Douglas? What were some of the benefits of making Onion a girl? Because it's kind of like the all the white people believe that's a girl. Some of the slaves and, and peers find out the truth. Um, we just won't, like this almost like written like a farce. Like where we, this tension is building. We know someone's going to find out eventually. But what were some of the benefits of like weaving him through the story as a girl? I tell you that. Well, the easy answer, and then you know Ethan is smarter than me about this stuff, but I can tell you that the easy answer is that um, to me, it reflected the view of the times where um, white people just saw um, black people as chattel, as property. And, you know, if it's, if it's, if it's black, it's black. And if it's in a dress, it must be a girl. Um, It just, it's just a perspective. You see what you want to see. But I thought it was fascinating that um, the the black folk knew immediately, or most of them did. Um, you know, Frederick Douglass had removed himself through a lot of you know stages of his high, you know uh, his whatever his reasons were not. Um, you know, noticing Onion was a, a a boy at first, but I think that you know most black folk understood that a if you needed some clothing and you found a dress, you put it on, whether you're a boy or a girl, if you're naked, you put it on. And B, if that's the way you need to survive by passing yourself off as something else, then that's what you do. And then C, we're all in this together. I'm not going to uncover you and you're not going to discover me. 
And it made perfect sense to me that that would be, you know, a trope throughout the novel. And, uh, which, you know, ultimately, it's really, uh, you know, go ahead, Ethan, because you, you, you're, you're, you're more, no, it's, I'm just, gonna, I'm just building it. on what you're saying. It's, it's an extremely effective tool that you hear you're going to be told this abolitionist story. And so you're just, your shoulders are aligned to discuss race in America. And you immediately put this young man in a dress. And now you're talking about gender and you're talking about, McBride immediately starts breaking down binary thinking. You know, you think you're talking about race. No, you're talking about gender. You think you're talking about North versus South. No, John Brown is more angry at the North than he is at the South. It's all, everything gets gray, you know, and and by that it becomes about identity and and it knocks anybody off a, a knee jerk position where they think they know the answer. And you start talking about humanity. And it, it's just one of the brilliant ways in which McBride sets up, you know, sets up the game. So if we're going to talk more about John, John Brown as a character, he kind of picked up a gun later in life. He had to risk everything, basically left his small family, except for his sons that came with him. But what made him choose this fight? Like, what was it about him that he really saw this injustice as opposed to just as onion kind of said, you've got a farm, you can go be rich kind of to a, to a degree. Listen, you know, I mean, that's, that's why we're talking about him. You know, he couldn't turn a blind eye. He's a person. I mean, I found it as the actor playing him. Uh, that was the essential question. A lot of radical people who take up arms do it in their youth. It's very rare for a person you know, over the age of 55 to pick up a gun for the first time uh, for social justice. You know, I mean, you know, the Che Guevara's and Castro's of the world are, are usually quite young. And I think he'd spent the bulk of his life as a nonviolent abolitionist. I mean, I don't think it, I know it. He, his grandfather was an abolitionist. His father was an abolitionist. And it was a combination of his own sons getting older and his sons meeting trouble in bloody Kansas and a combination and that happening with the Dred Scott Act, which made the work that he had been doing, which was helping escape slaves illegal, that he felt backed into a corner to be the Christian that he wanted to be. Um, He needed to take a radical position that he was looking face to face with a society that was insane, you know, a society that thought it was okay to buy and sell human beings and humiliate people. And he decided that before he went, he was going to go to, you know, he was going to do something about it. He hadn't seen much change in a lifetime dedicated to nonviolent abolitionist movement. And, and so I found that really as a character trait, something that was deeply mysterious and, and fascinating to me. It's a great question. And just last question, this is for both of you, but Ethan, I watched your TED talk. On, you talked about playing the fool, and I can't help but think there's maybe some connection to this, you being involved with this story and this tone of the book. Do you have any advice for writers who want to approach something serious or they have a cause, how they can kind of make that comedic? Oh, I don't know that you can even speak in bold terms like that. They might not need to make it comedic. What I meant by playing the fool is a, a willingness to make yourself vulnerable. Um, and that the world can be a really cruel place and, and it throws a lot of punches at everybody. And if you want to st- 
stand up and go to war for your art. You have to be willing for others to see you as foolish or you're not going to be treading anywhere interesting. Uh, and I think that's what I was talking about. I mean, yes, I definitely gave that talk in the days after finishing this part. And, you know, and John Brown is the person who was called crazy and foolish his whole life. And the more you read his letters and the more you dive into his actions, you see a person of immense integrity. Um, and, and so I felt very inspired by that. But I'm not in the advice giving business. You know, I, I don't know what works for other people. I barely know what works for myself. <laughs> yeah, you know, as far as advice to young people adapting books at all, I would just say make sure you're in love with the material because there's going to be so many challenges along the way that have nothing to do with anything uh, other than, and we're only going to chip away at what you're trying to do. If you're, if you're not in love with the material, you might as well go down to Walmart and sell car batteries because it's just, <laughs> it's, just it's not going to, you know, it's a, it's a dead end. It's a dead, I don't, can't, can't tell you how many times I've been challenged by things that have nothing to do with the, uh, with the adaptation, but you've got to have passion for what you're doing. You have to have passion for the adaptation because um, you're going to be challenged in so many ways, like Ethan and I were on this project. You can't even imagine. And without that passion, you won't succeed. You know, I, I want to add one thing to that. When Mark and I did our very first interview about this project, I remember Mark being asked if there was anything he was afraid of. And he thought, long and deep and his he said no, i'm afraid of nothing except letting james mcbride down um that the only way i would ever fail is if i didn't honor um this unbelievable story that he has told and and um and i think for both of us the great joy of this collaboration is you know you're on the phone with the two of us but there was a third part of that this triangle that told this story and he he gave us a lot of confidence and um it was a, it, it was a great feeling when um when he was happy with with this show thank you for tuning in to the show if it's your first time listening make sure to hit that subscribe button and visit my new website for information on the youtube channel the blog the podcast and my new book ink by the barrel which takes advice from these 200 plus interviews and more at writerfieldnotes.com You'll see the link in the show notes. Thanks again.